It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest news from Ukraine, analyse the continuing fallout after the apparent death of Evgeny Prigozhin, and we discuss the secret trade routes helping Putin dodge Western sanctions. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 25th of August. One year and 182 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, former tank commander and Telegraph contributor, Hamish de Bratton-Gordon, and economics reporter, Melissa Lawford. I started by asking Dom to continue our analysis on the fallout after the death of Yevgeny Prigozhin. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. So, yeah, a lot of uh, lot of reaction posted. Um, you, you say death. Yes, I think we should we should go with that. I mean, there's we talked yesterday about the number of different theories out there, some of which bordering on kind of conspiracy theory. Um, and there's no denying that there's we have no definitive proof that Prigozhin and Dmitry Yutkin and the others were killed in the plane crash. We are never likely going to get any. So we could dance around the on a head of a pin for ages, or we can just say let's re- refer to it as you know, Prigozhin's death. So unless and until he pops up somewhere, and then. Once we've got through that discussion about deep fakes and dates and body doubles and God knows what. So, yes, for, for ease of shorthand, let's say Prigozhin was killed in the in the crash. So more reaction to that. Well, so firstly, after um, holding his silence for 24 hours, uh, Putin spoke yesterday. He said Prigozhin was a, a talented businessman, but somebody who had made serious mistakes. I mean, you know, proper mafioso stuff. Uh, in a very short speech last night from the Kremlin, Putin said Prigozhin had made a great contribution to the war. He didn't say war, obviously, but the, the war in Ukraine. And Putin also said an, an investigation into the crash was underway. I don't know if that's trying to work out what happened or how they can do it better next time. But anyway, that's just me. He said, I've known Prigozhin for a very long time, since the early 1990s. 
He was a man of difficult fate. He made serious mistakes in life, but he also achieved results both for himself and when I asked him for the common good, just like in recent months. So it's make of that, make of that what you will. But as expected, and as I mentioned yesterday, I think it could be a double-edged. This could be a double-edged sword. But as expected, Russian, some Russian security sources and propagandists have blamed Ukraine for the uh, the downing of the jet. I think it's a double-edged sword because a bit like the drone city in Moscow, on the one hand, it's an, it's an easy out. I don't think it'll work anyway. I don't think it will land. But to, to claim Ukraine did it. But the next logical step from that is that you then need to argue or try and explain how a Ukrainian hit team managed to get inside Russia with whatever it was, a surface wave missile, bomb, whatever. So I don't think that's going to wash. I don't think it's correct. But these comments are out there. And then the reports from the US say that there are intelligence assessments so this was this was unnamed uh, security sources that are briefing this i'm always always wary of unnamed sources uh, but anyway suggestions from the us that um, that it was a it was a bomb or some other kind of sabotage rather than a surface to air missile the closest we can get to that is last night the pentagon said there was no evidence to suggest a surface to air missile had brought down the plane but like i say unnamed sources speaking to some of the us uh, media organizations going a little bit further than that now, Poland said that Wagner could become more dangerous after the death of Prigozhin. Um, so Mateusz Morawiecki, who's the prime minister, uh, prime minister, sorry, he said the Wagner group comes under Putin's leadership. Let everyone answer the question for themselves. Who the, will the threat be bigger or smaller? For me, that's a rhetorical question. So, okay be really helpful if you could answer that mr morovetsky but i guess you mean it's going to be um a bigger threat from from putin now for their part russian militants fighting in support of ukraine have called on wagner mercenaries to switch sides so uh, we've met him before but denis kapustin who's commander of the russian volunteer corps he said yesterday you are facing a serious choice now you can stand in a stall of russia's defense ministry and serve as watchdogs for um, executors of your commanders or take revenge to take revenge you need to switch to ukraine's side now kapustin is a man not not attended (laughs) or or who does have controversy swirling around him he's a far-right russian national he set up the russian volunteer corps a year ago they fight on the ukrainian side or uh, i think this is the enemy of my enemy is my friend territory so is he on ukraine's side or is he anti-putin you know is it tomato tomato we don't know but anyway they have been acting this group is thought to have been acting in recent months behind or they're responsible for a number of attacks uh, along and just inside the russian border and then finally today's british ministry of defense uh, defense intelligence briefing they said it's highly likely Prigozhin is dead remember we've spoken about the 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 probability yardstick and what the what the actual sort of what highly likely means in in statistical terms don't worry about that now but you know it's as it says on the tin highly likely in their view that Prigozhin is dead and they say they they acknowledge there's no definitive proof but they do add they said his demise will almost certainly have a deeply destabilizing effect on the Wagner group I mean I said I said yes sir I think this is the end especially with Utkin going as well Dmitry Utkin dying I think this is the end of the Wagner group as it as it is I think the uh some of the, dare I say, the sort of lower down members that's left the rump of the Wagnerites will be assimilated into the Russian Ministry of Defence, which, as you remember, was the was the cause of the whole thing in the first place. Others may drift away, join other 
private military companies. There are there are many many PMCs in in uh, in Russia. So I, I don't think they're going to. I don't. Th- I mean, they were they were capable, but they they had to rely on the Russian MOD for a lot of their sort of bigger stuff, aircraft and and what have you that they were using in Africa. So with that gone and without dare I say a charismatic leader such as Prigozhin, then you know I can't see Wagner still existing as it is. What they did do, they they opened the door to a number of different countries across the world, but particularly in Africa. I think those those relationships will just be subsumed or taken on by the Russian state, most likely through the through the MOD, maybe outsourced to another one of the PMCs. But you know, I can't see Wagner existing as it is, and even if it does, they're not going to have a leader that says, "Right, lads, you know, we're going to we're going to carry on." Yevgeny's model, you know, he's our he's our sort of savior. It, it just won't be allowed to exist like that. So they will probably continue to to act as as guns for hire, but not in anything like the the the, the coherent entity that the the Wagner Group was. Bearing in mind, it was it was a myriad of different organisations. It had it had the armed wing. It had um, had the Internet Research Agency links to the Internet Research Agency, the the sort of trot uh, the, the uh, troll farm up in St Petersburg, and it had other other bits and pieces as well. But I, I think that's the end of it as we. As we know it, David. Thank you very much, Dom Nichols, for that. Hey, Mr. Breton Gordon, can I come to you? You've also written for The Telegraph on your reaction to the, the apparent news of uh, Evgeny Prigozhin's death. You write, Putin may in fact have signed his own death warrant because now he has two very powerful groups to worry about. Can you talk us through your thinking? Yes, absolutely. Good afternoon, everybody. I don't want to cover any old ground. I, I know that we've, we've been through this a great deal. First of all, pick up on, on Dom's point about sort of the mafioso style of apology and in inverted commas that Putin gave about Prigozhin. I mean, if anybody had any doubt that the Kremlin is a Camorra, a mafia parliament, then there should be absolutely no doubt at all. So I think that was quite telling. When we go on to, I had a very interesting conversation with some colleagues in Kiev this morning on a whole range of issues, but they, they have been listening intently to the, the Russian channels, Russian telegram channels in Russia, in, in Russian as well. And one very interesting piece that, that they were telling this morning, apparently the hot topic buzzing around the Russian telegram channels is actually... The CIA are responsible for the attack, a bit like, as Dom has said, the, the Russian government blaming the Ukrainians for doing it. Apparently, the fridge in Prigozhin's jet was changed two days ago. The fridge comes from an American manufacturer. And what the Russians are saying that some Americans sort of installed it a couple of days ago and it had a bomb in it, but really goes back to the whole thing about whether it's plausible that the Ukrainians could have shot it down. First of all, that there are sanctions. We really think that the Americans are going to allow an American fridge into an Embraer Canadian jet in Moscow. Very, very unlikely. It does lead to the fact that it appears to be some sort of explosion rather than anything else. But that's, that's what the Ukrainians are. The, you know, that, that's sort of hot talker in Kiev at the moment. But going back to the main piece here on why I think actually this is potentially more damaging than, for Putin than, than perhaps others are suggesting. I think two, two real reasons, well, two reasons, and, and then a, a final thought on this. I think the oligarchs are getting incredibly nervous. And not only are they getting drone strikes every day and having to dive into their cellars, it now appears it's pretty dodgy to get in there to their jets to fly down to Crimea or, or even across to Turkey, where most of them 
uh, seem to go. And I think that is beginning to wear. Also, although Prigozhin was not a military commander, as in trained at Sandhurst, West Point, etc., etc., he had crafted Wagner into the most effective military organization that the Russians had. Now, also yesterday, Sorovkin was officially dismissed. So the two most effective military commanders, and we discussed Chapko Pavlov a couple of weeks ago, maybe it was a month ago, very effective general who left too. So a lot of the, the two most effective field commanders, or three actually, have now gone. And I think that is going to have a, have a real impact on activities. And going on to Wagner itself, it's difficult to say exactly where they are, but there appear to be about 5,000 in Belarus still, apart from the others in, in Africa. Now, to run an organisation like this, and remembering that these people are criminals, these are murderers and rapists, you need a very strong structure guiding them. So I think below Prigozhin and his 2IC, there are a number of very strong, powerful people who are running this organisation. Now, these guys are mercenaries. There is a lot of money in this. Prigozhin and some of his cohorts have made a fortune out of this. Now, I just wonder, those 5,000 people sitting around in Belarus, Lukashenko paid him a bit. These are, as has been coined already, 5,000 guns for hire. And I'd be very interested to see where they turn up next, whether they are going to roll back into Moscow and do Putin's bidding. A lot of them are pretty cross. A lot of them genuinely had great affection for the leadership. So I think Wagner are something we we need to watch very closely and see where it goes. Now, the the other element that's come into this, um, again, discussing this whole issue with various people over the last couple of days, I've learned a a few words, and despite allegedly being a a don at Cambridge, I'm I'm no academic. But um, what's been said to me, there is a lot of compromat around dirty washing. And people anticipate this coming out over the next few days and weeks. Prigozhin knew that he was in difficulty. Now, some people are telling me that this compromat was he thought his insurance policy. Now, that has obviously not, that has not been effective. So one expects to see that. I think all these things really undermining Putin and what he's getting up to. And there are a whole host of other stories buzzing around it. Now, I'll also talk a minute about the the Ukrainian Special Operations Executive, which I'm coining it. And we look at seeing what's happening all over the battle space, including in Russia, and also rumours about other potential movements around the front lines. And I just think that things are, are more tenuous for Putin after the knives of, of Prigozhin than they were before. Thank you very much for that, Hamish. We'll come back later, I think, and talk a little bit more about the SOE and, and what you're seeing potentially in, in Ukraine. But Dom, can I come back to you? I think we've we've covered the ongoing reaction today to the death of Evgeny Prigozhin. So could you, Dom, just bring us up to speed with some of the other news we're hearing this afternoon? Yeah, so let's start down in Crimea. There's, well, a barrage to find that how you like. Barrage of drones, Russia saying, fired at Crimea last night. They originally said 42, which is which is a barrage in anyone's language, but they've since upped that to 73. So, I don't know, maybe they found another... Uh, 
31 drones somewhere. Anyway, so Russia's defence ministry said that, well, they said nine were destroyed over Crimea and 33 others were suppressed by electronic warfare and crashed without reaching the target. But I don't know what the what figures they're now putting on as they've upped it to 73. But anyway, a huge number of drones seemingly fired at Crimea last night. No comment from Russia about damage, but there are reports from the from the Melitopol mayor the installed Melitopol mayor that Russian soldiers were taken from a military base in the centre or just sort of the south of Crimea into uh, into a hospital in Semferopol, which I think is in the centre of Crimea. So we're not, we're not entirely sure what's happened there. This comes a day after that S-400 air defence system was destroyed to the in the northwest of Crimea and follows a reported Ukrainian commando raid on the peninsula. Some reports are linking all three together, saying that the uh, the commando raid was responsible for the destruction of the S-400 and it was either also part of the this massive drone air armada or that was used as a diversion. Not entirely sure. We, we don't know, basically. But a lot of things seemingly happening down there. All we do know for sure is that we've seen the the imagery of the of the S-400 going up and Russia said that there was this barrage of, well, pick, pick a number, pick a two-digit number of drones last night. Now, separately, today, sorry, no, yesterday, US State Department said yesterday that they'd imposed sanctions on 13 people and entities that they have said are connected to the forced deportation and transfer of Ukraine's children. So the US is also taking steps to impose visa restrictions on three Russian installed authorities over their involvement in human rights abuses of, of Ukrainian children. This comes from a statement from the State Department and then linked to that US ambassador to the UN, Linda uh, Thomas-Greenfield. She was, she was speaking yesterday in a UN Security Council meeting on Ukraine and said the United States will not stand by as Russia carries out these war crimes and crimes against humanity. Uh, as a reminder, Kiev, the government there have said or estimated that Russian authorities have deported and or forcibly displaced over 19, displaced, sorry, over 19,500 children since the start of the full-scale invasion last year. Now, yesterday was Ukraine's Independence Day. You'll see, you'll see on social media President Zelensky, who put out a, um, well, a, a a video about four or five minute video in which um, he pays tribute to all sections of Ukrainian society, uh, not just uh, not just those in the military, but but across the whole of society. And he's filmed in one static location uh, in in Kiev in front of a huge mural of Alexander Matsyevsky, who you may remember was the the captured Ukrainian soldier um, executed by by Russian troops after or in amongst the Battle of Bakhmut. So this was late December last year. Mr. Matsyevsky, you, you'll remember, he was unarmed. He'd been taken captive, so he was unarmed. He was smoking a cigarette. He's looking at the, at the camera. He says, Slava Ukraine, and then he's, he's shot multiple times. That image of him, the last image you see of him alive, has been turned into a, a huge mural painted on the side of a building, and that's the backdrop against which President Zelensky is speaking. It's quite a powerful, very well-produced video. You'll find it on social media. It's, it's worth a few minutes. And uh, then just finally, an update from the front. It's very confusing, as these things always are, but it looks as if the Robertina axis... So if you think down south, there are basically two axes of advance. There's one from Orkiv down through Robertina towards Tokmak and Melitopol, down almost directly towards Crimea. 
The second one is a little bit further to the east, heading towards Mariupol area. So the one on the, the west of those, heading towards um, Melitopol and, and Crimea, that seems to be achieving a measure of success. The town of um, Robertina was, was taken and consolidated over the last few days. We've talked about it repeatedly this week. It seems as if that is continuing, that the, the positions have been consolidated there by Ukraine and they are pushing on. There, have been, there has been some of the Western equipment seen down there. We've, we have seen British Challenger 2 tanks in action. We've seen US striker vehicles, one of which was knocked out. But we've also seen US Bradley infantry fighting vehicles down there. Now, we don't think this is the... The, the the reserve basically the brigades western equipped brigades that um that ukraine has we don't think they've been committed yet we think this might be either some subunits as in a, a small collection small grouping um of about 100 100 fighters ish depending on the organization it it would differ slightly in size between is it a tank is it an infantry is it engineer subunits so on and so forth but but a smaller unit of western equipped troops have probably been detached down to the fight so we think that's what we're seeing but there seems to be a bit of a breakthrough there's lots of chat amongst social media this morning many channels i don't know and therefore i I, i'm not i can't put any any strength on their report yet until i've seen it by other channels i do know and trust but it's worth keeping your eye on something that's happening down in in the southwest advance we think they've got two and maybe through the first line of defense we think there are two further lines of Russian pre-prepared defences there across the whole of the southern region. The big question, though, is how well populated the second and third lines of defence are, because having minefields and all that kind of stuff is, is, is effective. But to make it properly effective, you need to cover it by view. So either either with your own eyeballs or some electronic means and fire. You've got to be able to bring fire down on those on those areas. We don't know how well populated the second and third lines of defence are. So if they are not that populated, and, it, and I use the word very cautiously, but if it is just the pre-prepared defences on their own, that is a much more manageable problem. So we, we don't know, like I say, a lot of chat from, from sources I don't I don't know and therefore can't I can't trust yet, but something seems to be happening down in the southwest. So keep your eye on that on that area. And that's it for now, David. Thanks very much, Dom. Hamish, let's come back to you. You mentioned briefly before that you've been looking at, well, something analogous to what the Allies had in the Second World War, the Special Operations Executive. These are soldiers operating behind enemy lines, as you write, creating confusion, fear and logistic mayhem. You're, you're seeing the emergence of what appears to be a replication of this in the in the Ukrainian-Russian war, can you tell us what you what you think and what you've seen? Yes, absolutely. I mean, this is the oldest form of warfare: the clandestine operator behind enemy lines, creating confusion, fear, uh, and logistic mayhem. As a slight adjunct, it was interesting to see that uh, British security services MI5 and six arresting three sleeper Russian agents in the UK last week. Usually, these people uh, are left to be observed, but. Uh, a really a nod, I think, from the UK security services, the Kremlin, that they're still very much on this. But what, what has been most striking to me in this conflict is the emergence of what appears to be a replication of the Allies' special operations executive and Ukrainians operating or you people supporting Ukraine behind enemy lines. This idea of a death by a thousand cuts, which seems to be as successful in 2023 as it was in the 1940s, incredibly brave young men and women conducting operations to gather intelligence, conducting attacks where the Russians least expect it uh, and hurt the most. 
the SOE blew up railway lines and ammunition dumps supplying the Nazis war machine in World War II. And to, to me, it looks like the Ukraine SOE are doing the same in Crimea and elsewhere. And we covered the Crimea operation just now. Mysterious fires in arms factories deep in Russia, explosions at seaports hundreds of miles from Ukraine, fighter jets destroyed, airports shut daily by unseen operators. Allied to this, irregular drone attacks deep into Russia. And the nervousness and fear on the Russian people and the oligarchs is almost palpable. The other thing that struck me on the front lines was hearing of the the daring commando raid a few weeks ago across the river where the uh, Russian battalion commander was captured and then paraded on social media showing the captives, showing the Ukrainians where all the Russian troops were. I mean, we know morale hitherto was very low with those Russian conscripts on the front line. You just imagine what it's like now with them looking at it. Allied to that, we also saw last week a thousand Ukrainian commandos just returned from six months of special forces training with our own Marines in the south of England, who no doubt will be put back in into the fight. So I find all this very interesting. And war has changed little over the millennia, but technology provides some small advantages for small intervals, you know, until the opposition catch up. But, but to me, it's the war in the shadows, the spies, the saboteurs, the special forces, conducting operations deep in enemy territory, a lot with no hope of survival if caught, but whose operations sap the morale and the will of the enemy to fight, who no doubt will be equal to the Western tanks and the F-16s in winning this war for Ukraine uh, and ultimately getting rid of the tyranny that they're having there. So to me, this deep battle, as it were, is hugely significant and seems to be gathering a pace and gathering success. Thank you very much, Amos. I'm sure that's a subject we'll come back to in the future, but thanks for giving us your overview there. Dom, unless you have anything to comment or add to Hamish's points there, would you talk to us a little bit about F-16s? I know your most recent Defence in Depth video, and if you haven't seen Dom Nichols' Defence in Depth videos for The Telegraph on our website and on YouTube, I'd recommend you do go and watch it. We'll put it in the show notes for today's podcast. But you talk about the plane, and I think it might be just worth for our listeners doing a bit of a recap, because it's, it's, it's the plane that's being talked about for months now that the Ukrainians really want to get their hands on. Uh, A lot is moving in this space. But could you just tell us, explain to us very simply what makes it so useful and why the Ukrainians think it will be a game changer for them? Yeah, Okay. so this is on the back of the news that the Pentagon yesterday said it would begin training Ukrainian F-16 pilots in the US from next month. So Pentagon spokesman Pat Ryder said these pilots will be conducting English language training at Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas in September prior to attending F-16 flying training in Arizona. And we think the Arizona training is going to take place at Morris Air National Guard Base. I'm actually out as part of our U.S. visit in a couple of weeks' time. I'm going over to Colorado Springs, going to visit the U.S. Air Force Academy there, chat to some folks, so um, we'll be able to to talk more in depth then. But basically, uh, yes, you're right. So today's Defence in Depth, or this week's Defence in Depth that comes out out today, is looking at F-16 and Gripen and and air power, as much air power as I can look at in 10 minutes, which, which ain't a lot, quite frankly, but um, I try and touch the the major the major um, bits and bobs to think about there. Start off with the OODA loop, good old John Boyd, and the and the OODA loop observe, orientate, decide, and act, and then um, I sort of broaden that out 
and talk about and talk about the air power more broadly. So F sixteen, why is it why is it being touted? Well, it's the same argument as we've had for um, tanks and long range precision artillery and all the rest of it. First, firstly, it's good stuff. It's good kit. It works. Terrific. But also, um, and most importantly, here as we've seen, arguably with the armoured fighting vehicles, that having a massive global spares pool and a, a logistic footprint that is enormous is very helpful here if you start mixing your fleets it's it's tricky you know you might be able to train the pilots fine but you, there's a whole lot more as we keep saying a whole lot there's a massive difference between kit and capability you can buy a jet get a pilot get the engineers to fill it with avatar or whatever the hell you do and off it goes great one it flies once brilliant but in order to have a capability to have it there every day, have it next week, have it next year, next month, have a pipeline of people coming through, you've got to think of all sorts of other bits and pieces. And that's that's where we, we get into the logistics. And they're all saying that um, amateurs talk tactics and professionals talk logistics. So, you know, the thing with F-16 is it has established pipelines for training if need be. It's got a big spares pool around the world. It's got a lot of people who know what they're talking about that can be hired utilized the the knowledge supported for this for this effort so it's a big it's a big a boon so in in and of itself it's not not the greatest jet in the world it's it's very very good but the, the as a capability because it's got that massive logistic backup it is it is a thing that could probably that will help ukraine the most in terms of air power now in particular we look at the harm missile we've talked about harm missiles before high speed anti radiation missiles the radiation, nothing to do with nuclear fallout, not that kind of radiation, literally the radiation of, of electromagnetic energy, i.e. radio waves. So how radars work, radar being radio detection and ranging, as we all know. So the HARM missile, the AGM-88 that's been supplied by the US, homes in on radio energy that's being pumped out into the sky by, in this case, Russian air defence radars looking for jets and missiles and cruise cruise missiles, drones and all, all the rest of it. So the HARM that's been sent... Harm has has three three modes. Very briefly, three modes basically. It's got a pre-briefed mode, so you tell the missile, "We think there's an S-400 air defence missile uh, air defence system at this grid reference," and then the missile flies off the jet and goes to that location and starts looking for what it what it should see. Of course, if the thing has moved, if the S-400 has moved, then the harm just just piles in and it's and it's a waste of a missile. So, pre-briefed mode can works, but it's not ideal, and we think that is what has been operated so far the harm missiles that have gone out and been retrofitted which is a you know fancy word of saying bodged onto the mig 29s that you ukraine are using so in pre-brief mode good but but it's not it's not the be all and end all you've then got 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 two other modes so you've got self-protect mode which is when the the jet the f-16 now can do this so the jet has a radar warning receiver that the jet can tell when it's being it's being lit up by electromagnetic energy and it can then work out where that's coming from and probably what kind of system it is it can then tell the missile that go and have a look over there it can also alert the pilot and say we're being painted do you want to do something about it so that's a much better it's got a much bigger bigger capability basically the the jet can can see more stuff than the missile itself and then finally you've got the target of opportunity mode where the missile so it doesn't use the radar warning receiver from the jet but the the harm seeker head is on at all times and it might see something and it tells the pilot hey there's something over here do you want me to go and have a go and have a go so those though all three modes are, are ideally what you want and the f-16 is able to do that much more than the than the mig-29 
However, as I the point I make in the defense in depth video is is this is just one part of it. So just having let's say they've got a load of F-16s, let's say they can use harm in all its modes. They've got a full logistic footprint. They've got engineers up the yin yang. They can they they've got F-16s till Christmas next year. Great, but that's only part of it. That's that in and of itself isn't going to win battles because the day these days of of air superiority, i.e. owning the skies, pretty much over. I think most most NATO air experts that I've spoken to have said that you know it ain't counterinsurgency anymore with the Taliban throwing just firing. Uh, weapons up at you those days are gone state on state a peer level competitor you can't hope for air air supremacy or or air superiority now all you can hope for is a temporary ownership of a small chunk of the airspace and to do that you need a whole package called a comeo a composite air operation you need to send in electronic warfare jamming aircraft to to confuse the the enemy air defense radars you then send in missile uh, you then send in aircraft that has weapons such as harm to go and destroy those air defense radars and then you can put in jets whose job is to protect people on the ground so they work a racetrack circuit and they are plinking tanks and knocking stuff out on the ground to allow the ground forces to push through so all that stuff it doesn't come easily you need to practice that you've got to have those all those other capabilities as well and then you've got to train 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 and then train some more both the air and the air land integration so to do all of that is very, very tricky. That's how you might be able to get through this layered Russian defence down south. And that is not solved by gifting um, F-16s and possibly Swedish Gripen as well and just thinking, ha-ha, job done, we'll, we'll be there by Christmas. You know, it doesn't work like that, but you've got to start somewhere and the F-16 is a brilliant place to start. So, yes, it's good. It's, it's right, of course that Ukraine big this up as as the next great wonder drug because they want to scare Russians, and that's absolutely fine. That's what you have to do, get inside the enemy's head. But it it ain't the be-all and end-all. It's not going to bring about the end of the war in and of itself. Contrary to sub-editors, as they would love it, there is no silver bullet here, no game-changing technology or weapon, but it it's all the, the right thing, and it's much better to have it than not, basically. But uh, yeah, go and have a look at the, at the video, and it, it sort of blathers on about that for another few minutes. Thank you very much, Dom Nichols, for that. Hamish, would you like to comment on any of that or shall we move to our final thoughts? The, the only thing I'd say, and, and being a, a mere tank commander, I wouldn't profess to have any great knowledge of, of the airspace, but I think the psychological impact of the F-16s is is probably its most important piece and and, and really reiterating what Dom said. I, that, that to me is, is, is the thing, because at the moment they have nothing really that can... Uh, you know, keep the uh, attack helicopters and other Russian aircraft that that are unchallenged the most. So I think psychologically, they'll make an impact. And that's why lots of people are bigging them up. But we shouldn't underestimate what a challenge it's going to be to actually get them operating in the battle space. Well, thank you very much, Dom and Hamish. Just a note to all of our listeners. Monday is a a bank holiday in the United Kingdom, so there will be no regular live Ukraine The Latest, but we will be putting out the interview I did with Serhi Plocky, the Ukrainian historian, head of Ukrainian history at Harvard, on Monday. It's free to listen to. It's be, it's already on the website, and you can listen there with a subscription, but the episode will be going live and free to listen to on all of our podcast um, apps and platforms, so do listen to that on Monday if you haven't heard it already. Hamish or Dom, let's go with Hamish first, actually. Hamish, what is your final thought? Thanks very much. My final thought is around Compromat. 
So what is the dirty washing that's so that people who know about these things think that we're going to start to see in the next few days and weeks? Um, and the other is I'm going to be looking very closely at Wagner. I have my suspicions about them. I'm not entirely sure that uh, they're going to fall in line behind some other commander and go back in the trenches in the Donbass and elsewhere. Those 5,000 people knocking around Belarus, what are they going to do next? Thank you. Thank you very much, Hamish Breton Gordon. To finish today, Dom Nichols. Thanks, David. I'm going to keep my eyes on what's happening down in the southwest of Ukraine, this reported breakthrough. It does, of course, throw into focus all the issues we've been talking about for months now, about weapons for Ukraine, when they're going to get there, the debate about escalation and provocation. And I just think it's worth noting that it is five years ago today that one of the most clear-eyed and intelligent purveyors of information and descriptor of the threat from Russia, John McCain, died in the US. And my God, what would he what would he have said today if he was around? Not only about the political landscape as we see it around the world, but what is happening in and to Russia and in and to Ukraine. So five years ago today, we lost John McCain. Uh, but by God, I think he would have had a few things to say today about gifting of, uh, of weapons in, in, in a very, very real and obvious threat from the East. Thanks, Dom and Hamish. Earlier this week, I spoke to Melissa Lawford, The Telegraph's economics reporter. She's been looking at how Vladimir Putin is avoiding Western sanctions by using other, less well-known trade routes. Here's our conversation. Melissa Lawford, thank you so much for your time again today. Why and how have Russian imports recovered since the beginning of the full-scale invasion? Well, there's, there's a few things. And then, first of all, to look at the numbers... Russia invades Ukraine, the West imposes sanctions, and Russia's imports plunge. With this sort of a 30% year-on-year drop, it's a very steep vertical line on a, on a graph. And, and then it bounces back almost immediately. And within months, imports are back to levels seen before the war began, and they are totally on par with where they used to be right now, in dollar terms at least. So the first part of the story is Russia starts getting imports from new places. We can see in the numbers that exports from Turkey, China, India, all surge. And I'm talking, you know, from Turkey and China, we're looking at a 90% increase compared to 2019 levels. So pretty massive. But that is only part of the story. Because at the same time, what Russia has also done is it has diversified its trade routes. So there's some really, really interesting analysis from the Institute for International Finance. And it shows that actually, or it suggests, but it's pretty clear that this is what is happening, that a substantial chunk of that trade from the West is simply getting to Russia via new backdoor routes. So In the first six months of this year, the UK's exports to Russia were down by 53% compared to 2019. From the US, they were down by 72%. But almost all Western countries increased their exports to this this kind of block, this Central Asia block, which the IIF defines as Armenia, Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan. And, And then the Belarus is also within that. It's not quite Central Asia, but it's within the allied within the group that's allied with Russia. 
Uh, so US, port, US exports to this group have jumped by 11.5%. Mm. From Poland, the increase was 27%. So you can see it's it's not, in most cases, it's not totally outweighing that loss of uh, or that drop in exports to Russia, but, but it is it is making up some of the ground. And if you look on an individual country level, some of the stats are nuts. So Germany's exports to Russia have dropped by 54%. Its exports to Kyrgyzstan, the IIF says, have jumped by 2,000%. And these are not trading nations. These are landlocked places, and their economies are not booming. So <laughs> it's pretty clear what is happening here. And, and there's some pretty clear evidence that these countries are are sort of phantom destinations, that, you know, that maybe these goods are not even touching the ground. They're being diverted straight into Russia. Wait, so just, just on that, so do you mean that, for example, something exported from Germany would go to Kyrgyzstan, but it wouldn't be unloaded or anything, it wouldn't be sold or anything, it would just almost just stay on a truck and it would get signed off to go north. Is that what you mean by sort of phantom destination? Yeah, exactly. I mean, this stuff is very, very difficult to track, but there is evidence that that exactly that is happening. So, for example, Germany's records of what it exports to Kyrgyzstan are higher than what Kyrgyzstan records it imports from Germany. And that gap has widened. So the IIF is saying that some of this stuff just seems to be evaporating. Wow. And speaking to people in Moscow, the the sort of end users in all of this, uh, these products are showing up that have clearly come from these places. Uh, Coca-Cola is no longer selling or, or manufacturing or selling Coca-Cola in Russia. But you can buy Coca-Cola in shops in Moscow that has labels from Kazakhstan, that has labels from Poland. Uh, I was speaking to a guy in Moscow who was saying before the war, he had never seen a Whisper chocolate bar, you know, a Cadbury's Whisper chocolate bar that had never been sold. He'd never seen that in Russia. And now he says they're everywhere. And I went to... Mondelez, which is the parent company of, of Cadbury's. And Mondelez is still, is still operating in Russia, but anything that is manufactured in the UK by Cadbury's is not being exported to Russia. And Mondelez says, we have not authorised sales of Whisper chocolate bars in Russia. So the evidence is they are coming in through these Central Asian trade routes. And there's also evidence that there could be a third layer in this equation. So if we look at the Baltic states in, in Lithuania and in Estonia, there the increase in exports from those countries to the Central Asian bloc that we were talking about more than outweighs the drop in their exports to Russia. So there is some evidence there that there could even be this sort of, that there could be another leg in this trade diversion, maybe things are going to Lithuania and then they're going to Kazakhstan and then they're going to Russia. So it is very complicated, but the numbers are undeniable. This feels like quite a large loophole in the sanctions regime against Russia. What can the West, what can can business do about this, if anything? Well, I mean, the first thing to say is this stuff is technically legal. Mm. You know, the companies 
that are, you know, and, and if, if their exports to Kazakhstan have surged, they are, and those exports are going on to Russia, ultimately they are still profiting from sales to Russia. Um, and, and this whole thing has been uh, encouraged by the Kremlin. So we saw Putin introduce the parallel imports program in May last year, which is basically a list of uh, Western goods that he's encouraging companies to find alternative trade routes in import. And, uh, you know, on the Russian government's last count, that imports program was had imported about $20 billion worth of goods in the first six months. Analysts now think it's about double that, so about $40 billion. And that's about 40% of, of Russia's total imports in, in dollars terms. So this is massive. Mm. And it's a very, very grey area because it's very, very difficult to police. I mean, the IAF was talking about how they got in touch with German customs. And, and they said, you know, how do you explain this 2000% increase in, in the rise in it, your exports to Kyrgyzstan? And, and they said, the German's custom, German customs office was saying, you know, well, these are legit. They, these are actual imports. And the IAF is saying but, but nobody is, is looking at this, these headline figures and thinking, well, this just doesn't make sense. But analysts say, you know, I suppose there is a question mark, should more be being done to police exactly the, the end point of where these products are going? And and a line, you know, lines haven't been drawn anywhere. But the, those things are incredibly difficult to police. And everybody is saying that the biggest thing that we can do to stop this actually is to just decrease Russia's spending power more. And, and the best way to do that would be to lower the price cap on Russian oil. So if we can constrain their bank balance further, that will further curtail the their ability to import anything, it will hit their spending power. So, so just to make sure I've understood that in sort of layman's terms, if you reduce the cap on oil, the Russian Treasury gets less money for what it sells and therefore can buy less goods imported from anywhere? Effectively, yes. There's a big sort of flow in the ecosystem around that. But yes, that, that is the bottom line. And I think it is also important to mention um, because there's been a lot of discussion recently about inflation in Russia. Obviously, we saw the emergency interest rate intervention, and we've also seen a lot on the exchange rate and the weakening value of the ruble. And I just think it is important to mention here that you know, having this added layer, a diverted trade route, it's a whole other level of logistics. It's a whole other level of bureaucracy. And this is flowing into much, much higher costs of imports, which have already been massively inflated by their weak currency. And you talk to people in Moscow and they talk about, you know, how prices for some things have sort of tripled uh, if you want to buy Western cosmetics or something like that. Uh, so on on the one hand, this is a way for Russia to, it is a way that Russia is skirting sanctions or, or finding this loophole, but they're paying for it. Mm. It's It's all part of the squeeze. What, if anything, do you think happens now? I mean, you've spoken to lots of analysts. Did they say anything about the months ahead, what we might expect to see or, or nothing at all? I mean, as you said earlier, the, the point about this is it's completely legal. You can't not export things to Kyrgyzstan. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a really important point. Yeah, there's a big question mark over the next few months. I mean, I, I think the way that things stand now for Russia, this is, you know, I mean, this works. It, it's more expensive, but it functions Certainly, I think some of 
the countries in the middle are nervous about the possibility of secondary sanctions. I, d I don't know to what extent they, they could really be on the cards. But definitely, I think Western governments need to be much more aware of this. And, uh, and I think there needs to be a bigger conversation around the price cap. Is there anything else you'd like to mention, Melissa? I, I think it is really important that everybody just never takes anything as a given. I just feel that everything, all of the policies around sanctions sound so good. But what sounds great in name just doesn't necessarily, what, it, it, it doesn't matter what it sounds like in name. What, what matters is the reality on, on the ground. And I think we all have a responsibility to keep critiquing this because it's also a, a, a changing picture and we just cannot be complacent. Melissa Lawford, thank you so much for your time. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter, you can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.